Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we'll be talking about the Star Wars saga. This Friday, the new Star Wars film, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, hits theaters. We won't be talking about that film in depth on this episode because Adam hasn't seen it yet. And uh, so excited. Well, that's what we'll be talking about next week. But right now, we wanted to sort of look back at the Star Wars films. We did an episode back in May where we talked about the Star Wars prequels because it was the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace. So if you want to want to hear us go long on the prequels, there's an episode for that. But this episode will focus more on sort of how Star Wars has grown and changed over the course of its 40-plus years and where does the franchise go from here? So that we're going to start chronologically. We're going to start with the original trilogy. Then we will briefly talk about like what is the prequel trilogy trying to do? How did it reflect Star Wars? What was the backlash to it? Things like that. And then we'll talk about the newer films, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, before touching on the spinoffs, Rogue One and Solo. So that's sort of the structure of the show today. Uh, so let's start with the original trilogy, 1977 Star Wars. And, you know, I, I so I've been rewatching Star Wars. The, I started, I rewatched the prequels for that episode we did back in May. But then this past weekend, I was like, okay, I want to go back and revisit the original trilogy. And it's crazy how much like Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, they just hold up very, very well. They're just very watchable films. Um, and I think. You know, yes, Star Wars A New Hope is the sort of uh, hero with a thousand faces. It's really fascinating to sort of read about how that film changed, like how what it, what it originally was meant to be and how the, in the writing process it became to to know we, we came to see it as what we know today. But it was very different uh, in those early drafts. Um, and it became sort of this cultural phenomenon, like Star Wars was very popular when it was released and then after the original trilogy it kind of started being dormant and we'll talk a little bit about that but adam what what are your thoughts on the original trilogy uh i also have been rewatching the films and like a new hope is good it's probably one of the best films ever made it obviously uh you know changed the industry forever uh in terms of it being like this big sci-fi epic uh i think i talked about recently on the podcast the the story of how hilariously george lucas showed the movie to his friends uh like scorsese and spielberg and coppola and uh brian Brian palma Palma. (laughs) and like no one got it and De palma was like this is fucking terrible (laughs) and i think spielberg was the only one who like kind of liked it um but it was rough and especially if you go back and look at the dailies like the if you go back and look at the raw footage without the john williams score without any any of the effects like it's very silly and it's very low rent and it was a huge gamble uh and it paid off and i think it i think it holds up well uh i think what struck me most about rewatching a new hope was just how kind of silly and hokey it is like i feel like the conversation around star wars has has now become so inclusive for like the expanded universe and the video games and the comic books and uh, you know, all these extra things that have made it quote unquote more adult or more serious or more deep or mythology like. But if you just go back and watch a new hope and think of it as like, this is just a movie that was released in 1977 and George Lucas only had kind of vague ideas about where it would go afterwards. um, It's just this kind of like fun, like kind of flash Gordon esque adventure that begins with kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, 
point of view with R2-D2 and C-3PO. Uh, like, I feel like we forget that R2-D2 and C-3PO are kind of the, the main point of view characters for that original film. Um, and so much of the opening kind of follows them. And it's just kind of these two droids who get caught up in this huge war between two factions and this epic story and, and epic adventure. But like, you know, they... Uh, bicker in the sand and they fall down and like it's just you know silly stuff and it's as as George Lucas has been saying for years and years and years he made kids movies yeah that's that's the thing it's sort of Star Wars was made for children that's not to say that Star Wars can't grow up but it's sort of you know this sort of thing where like grown-ass adults are talking about like no Star Wars is this and no Star Wars is that or like you know people who just flat out miss the simple, like, there's a light side that's good and a dark side that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, and they're still like, I'm gonna be a fucking asshole to you. I'm like, do you not did you not get the the fable of the <laughs> of Star Wars? Did you miss that point? Yeah. So like it's but you're right, it is a very simple story, but I just think it's a simple story that's sort of reframed by sort of being kind of like a space western. And then uh, but with like elements of fantasy, you know, there's the mystical force and, and and it just it sort of takes all these elements and and retrofits them into something that feels new, even though it draws from a lot of inspirations. Um, and it's well, just and it's also, oh, go it, ahead. It's also I mean, uh, I think one of the main reasons it connected with people so deeply and still connects with people is it's kind of that Harry Potter thing. And obviously Harry Potter was influenced by star wars but you know it at heart it's this adolescent boy who lives on a farm who dreams of something bigger and something more and uh you know gets roped up into this adventure somewhat against his will but he's been dreaming about like going afar but it takes his aunt and uncle being burned alive for him to finally get to go (laughs) um but you know he gets uh he goes on this adventure with a princess and a you know a rogue rebel and they're uh you know out of their element and out of their depth and he gets to see different planets and uh different creatures and you know ultimately he gets a medal at the end so it's just a story about a boy who uh wants to get out of his podunk town and i think that's something that a lot of people related to back in the 70s and a lot of people still relate to now yeah, it definitely has that sort of that dreamer quality that, again, he, Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces where it's sort of like there's the there's the aspiring hero, but he resists the call until yeah. he is forced to go on the journey with the wise old mentor who must die so that the hero can grow. And then the hero is tested and the hero, you know, it it, it and it's fine. It works. Um, and I, but I think Empire like I like watching Star Wars A New Hope more. I think it's the more enjoyable film for me personally. But at the same time, I recognize that Empire Strikes Back is the sort of better, I don't want to say better crafted. It's the riskier film. It's, it's the, better crafted. I think you can say it's better crafted. The cinematography. Well, I would say Empire, like it's, I would say A New Hope is better crafted simply because it feels like a bigger gamble, you know, sure. like that paid off. And then like Empire sort of like, like empire carries the ball forward it doesn't just repeat a new hope the stakes are higher the stakes are higher it breaks up it breaks up the characters into different groups and like and then it has them lose a lot no one wins in empire strikes back no one wins it's a it's which it makes it a weird film and like it's very popular um and it does make it like it never feels like a downer and maybe that's because you and i grew up like after return of the Jedi had already come out. Like, so we don't have that experience of like, you go to the theater in 1980 and you're like, 
oh, Han Solo's in Carbonite now. <laughs> yeah. That's life. Or like Darth, <laughs> like you don't ever have, like you and I never have to sit with like Darth Vader is Luke's father. You never have to sit with that. We just like, oh, on to the next one. Yeah. Whereas like in 80, that was a big fucking deal. Um, but I still feel like, I mean, rewatching Empire, it's just kind of crazy that no one really gets what they want, but like everything is by testing our heroes, we find them more endearing. Yeah. It's, it's challenges. It challenges the notions and ideas set up in a new hope. Um, and I think, you know, I think empire is where star Wars becomes star Wars. Uh, again, you look at a new hope, uh, just watch a new hope and try to think of it like as in a vacuum. And there's really not a ton, like there is a lot of bending over backwards after the fact to, kind of retcon the idea that Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader because <laughs> when Obi-Wan is talking about Luke's father you know it's clear in that moment he's not talking about Darth Vader it was just kind of like oh here's a piece of dialogue that will be interesting and and you know for the story and everything um I think Empire is where uh you know that mythology starts to grow and things start getting bigger and um uh it's obviously as you said it gets darker uh, and I think, you know, obviously the big Darth Vader reveal is a huge thing. Um, it's, I don't know, it's it's a very good, interesting film. Yeah, no, it takes the right chances and those those chances pay off. But in its time, it was sort of like, like we, we look back at it like, oh, obviously, who doesn't love Empire? And I think, and, and, you know, people have written about like Mike Ryan, who was like, who was a fan at that time, like who was a kid when that came out, like he talked about how empire was not that warmly received. Like it was sort of, people were a little cold on it and return of the Jedi was meant to sort of go back to sort of what was acceptable. Um, not that like empire was a flop, but like the way it turned out, people were like, I don't know if this is the star Wars that I want. Like, cause it yeah. challenges people. Like, and people don't like being challenged by the things that they buy. And like, if you look at it, if you buy a movie ticket, you want the good experience, not, oh, the hero lost his hand. <laughs> well, and also just even like from a film filmmaking perspective, Empire Strikes Back cinematically is a much different film. Yes. Uh, Irvin Kirshner. I mean, the story goes that George Lucas wrote and directed A New Hope for Empire Strikes Back. He handed off directing duties to Irvin Kirshner and uh, Kirshner didn't shoot like a ton of takes or a ton of coverage. He was very much uh, more of like a specific director. And that's why I think Empire has the best cinematography of the original trilogy, the best cinematography of the, um, the Lucas films. I think uh, it's much deeper. It's darker. He's playing around with color and light a lot more. And it's very, Oh yeah, for sure. Like, like Cloud City is like nothing else. Yeah, in the series, and even the opening in the Rebel base, like the you have Han and Leia talking in the darkness. Uh, and I would highly suggest watching these movies on Disney Plus. The 4K. Uh, oh, it's so good. The 4K is so good, it, except when you get to like a special edition, like CG edition, yeah. where it's like <laughs> someone dropped PlayStation Two graphics into your movie, <laughs> and you're like, "What the fuck is this?" It's so distracting in A New Hope because, as, as I said, like there's a handmade quality to A New Hope, and then when you get to like, oh, there's a giant CG monster crossing in front of the cantina and like that's annoying um but what happened was is uh lucas wasn't on set every day for empire strikes back and he got all this footage back and there wasn't a ton of coverage and he was pissed because that mean that meant that lucas couldn't 
mess with the footage, you know, in the edit. Because Lucas, as a producer, he didn't really want to, uh, you know, direct these sequels. He wanted to be able to shape them and mold them in post-production. And as Lucas and all of his actors have attested, he's not a great director with actors. He's not, he doesn't know what to say to them. He's not good with any of that. Um, so Lucas was pissed with uh, Irvin Kirshner a bit. But I think it's, I mean, I... I think it's the best made film of the original trilogy, but I agree with you. I think a new hope is more fun to watch. Yeah. And then you get to return of the Jedi. Yes. I, okay. So my, my feeling about return of the Jedi is that other outside of the Luke invader stuff, like the Luke invader stuff is some of the best material in the entire saga, not just the original trilogy, entire saga, because it's such a powerful story of a son who has been wronged by his father and yet still believes that his father can be saved. And it's a really powerful father-son narrative about what's being tested, uh, the sins of the past, what new generations can, can, how they can change the future. Um, It's really rich. The rest of the film is bad. It's a bad, it's a pretty bad film. If it weren't for the Luke and Vader stuff, I would put it on the level of the prequels. It really is like, Again, going back to Mike Ryan, Star Wars expert, he wrote a great article on Uproxx that you should check out, which is, what is Luke's plan for Jabba's palace? <laughs> what is it? Like, and I'm watching, like, what is his fucking plan? Like, what was the, what was the ideal scenario? What was, was, what was supposed to happen? And, like, why, and how is it, how did it go wrong? Because, basically, Jabba's palace is like, boy, it's sure great to get the gang back together. And like, then it's sort of like someone goes to Jabba and's like, let Han go. And he's like, no. And then someone else <laughs> goes to Jabba. He's like, let Han go. And he's like, no. And then it's <laughs> like, then they fight a rancor and it's just, this goes on and on and on. And then we get to the sail barge, everything on Tatooine other than rescuing Han, which I would, I guess is necessary. Um, is pointless. It's such like, it's like a big, it almost feels like if, if they had made like a television special, like a really expensive television special to bridge empire and return of the Jedi, because nothing that really happens on the sail barge or around Jabba's palace has any real payoff other than like, Oh, Luke's a Jedi master. Now I'm like, cool. (laughs) That's, that's great. His plans are garbage. So I don't know how impressed I should be. But, um, you know, once you then once the film gets rolling again, the Luke Vader stuff is great. But man, Endor is a chore. It is a fucking chore. It's all a chore. I mean, talking about the the whole first act of the film, yeah. it honestly feels like a modern blockbuster these days where it's like, all right, we need to have an action beat every, you know, every 10, 10 pages. pages. Yeah, we need. All right. What, and especially the, the special editions with the whole new song from the Jabba's jazz singer or whatever the hell. Um, again, like making a film for children. Return of the Jedi is the most childish of the original trilogy. And it feels like an overcorrection on Lucas's part mm-hmm. after he was kind of upset about the direction that Empire went cinematically. Um and maybe, you know, as you said, at the time, the reaction was like, oh, this is pretty dark. This is pretty rough. Return of the Jedi is like, everything is fine. It's fine. It's nice and bright and shiny. Yeah, and but no one will but, die. But definitely an overcorrection, because even if you look at like a new hope, like Han Solo has a character arc in a new hope. Like he goes from being like this roguish guy who doesn't really believe in the force. And like he's kind of only in it for himself. And by the end of the film, he's been on a journey that where friend, he learns the value of friendship and that the force is real and that he 
you know, wants to help out in the rebellion. That's a character arc. Han Solo has no character arc in Return of the Jedi. Now, the character was probably supposed to fucking die. Well, he was. So here's something I learned recently that I didn't know. Uh, so Harrison Ford was contracted for only two films of the original trilogy. Uh, Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher were contracted for three. So this is the reason that Han is frozen in carbonite at the end of Empire Strikes Back is because they did not know for sure that they would get Harrison Ford back for Return of the Jedi. And by the time Return of the Jedi came around, Raiders of the Lost Ark had been released. And so he was kind of a big deal. Um and I don't know how they convinced him back precisely. I'm sure it's out there. Uh, I'm sure it, it, the answer is money. Um, but he wanted George to kill him off, and George said no. And I think Harrison Ford's direct quote from an interview I watched from like 10, 15 years ago was uh, George told him there was no uh, money in dead Han Solo toys. So <laughs> after uh, realizing how much money he was making off of the uh, toys and merchandise off of Star Wars, uh, it appears that George Lucas decided not to sacrifice his character um for the sake of toys um according which is, to, which is really what you want from from a storyteller yeah and that you know that may have been a joke it may have been like a half joke um i do I, think if, george, i would say half joke is being charitable <laughs> well it does seem like george cares about these characters and stories but i don't think he's as obsessive about it as as the fans are um I remember watching like years and years ago an interview with between him and Seth MacFarlane for the Family Guy Star Wars things, and Seth was asking him about like some asking him Harrison Ford or George Lucas. Oh, sorry, George Lucas. Okay. Um, and Seth MacFarlane was asking George Lucas about some spaceship or other from the movies, and George was into like I don't know, like I don't know these things. It's just a thing I made up. I don't care. Uh, like I don't care the difference between an X wing and an A wing or whatever the fuck. Um, and I just found that was pretty eye-opening for me. It's like, oh, this guy isn't really into this super-duper fandom. And I think, you know, to his credit, I think that's partly why he was like, uh, you know, if you want to write expanded universe novels or do fan parodies or whatever, go with God. Like, I don't really care. It's yours now. It's not mine. So all of this to say Return of the Jedi sucks. Yeah, Return of the Jedi is, is a tough watch, folks. I, it really not, is. It's not even fun. Like, the Ewoks are kind of cute, but there's so much of them. It's... It's, I, again, it's I, that go, over yeah. I go back and forth on whether the Ewoks are cute. Like, yes, they're little teddy bears, but they also have like human teeth. <laughs> so like, yeah. why do they need teeth? Why, why do they need like those teeth out in front? I don't know. Yeah, I Return of the Jedi is a very tough watch. I found my when I was rewatching, I was found myself checking out like a lot because again, like if what happens on Endor, like. We have to get the base. Oh, there's a speeder chase. Oh, we got separated. All right, we have to go back to... The, okay, now the Ewoks are on our side. All right, let's go back to deactivate the, the thing. Oh, no, it was a trap. Let's go back. Oh, no, we got the upper hand. Like, it's so... And all of these things happen, and it doesn't doesn't tell you anything new about Han or Leia. They're just things that happen. Yeah. And I also think it ends so abruptly for a movie that was supposed to kind of conclude that three-movie arc it just kind of ends like i guess they have the you know the scene between luke and leia before but there's no like let's get around and talk about what happened or let's get some resolution here it's like and everyone's dancing yeah <laughs> which the first two movies end up pretty abruptly as well but they are not ending the story you know right and i get it that endings are tough but still yeah all right and so then <laughs> So then, then so then Star Wars kind of like goes dormant and basically like to be a Star Wars fan is about the same as kind of being a Star Trek fan. Like it's basically like there are these nerdy things and I'm talking about sort of if you go from 83 to 97, those are the years I'm talking about. And 
it's like it's not that it's bad to be a Star Wars fan, but like this is not these are like when being a geeky person will get you bullied. Like you you don't rule the world in this era. And it's not that like Star Wars is bad or anything like that. It's just like if you like Star Wars, you're a nerd. And like that's fine. It's just you're a nerd. Um and then finally there's word that, oh my God, there are gonna be new Star Wars movies. But before that, they're like, let's re-release the original trilogy as special editions where we've added things that with new visual effects and new scenes. And this promotes this, this creates some, some backlash like Han no longer shoots first. And that becomes a whole fucking thing. And I don't know how you felt. I assume you saw the, the move, the special editions in theaters. I did not. Holy shit. All right. Well, I did. I did. It was a big deal because of the way they released them in 97. It was like in January, come see a new hope. And then in February, come see empire. And then in March, come see, uh, you know, return of the Jedi. And like, so like every month you're like going back to the theater to see like star Wars on the big screen for the first time, really like in, in my, for my, you know, for my generation to get that chance and my age, like in 97, I was 13. So I was like, or actually I wasn't even 13 yet when they were releasing these movies, I was 12. Um, but I was really uh, excited to see them. I wasn't embedded in that fandom where it's like, it's bullshit that Han doesn't shoot first. And, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the special editions became sort of the, 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 the flashpoint of a coming battle where people would be like, I don't know if I can ever, like if I can trust everything Lucas does like, cause because star Wars was just like, it was a fandom, but it wasn't like a, a global phenomenon like you were very protective of star Wars. And so even if there was things you didn't like, you could kind of go back and forth and talk about them. And that was sort of how you liked it. Like, I think a good example of it is if you look at clerks from 1994, that's kind of how those fans talked about star Wars. Like what's your favorite empire return of the Jedi. What's that like? Like clerks is not Kevin Smith dreaming up things out of his imagination. These are conversations that Kevin Smith had in his life um, as a star Wars fan. So that's kind of like a, a document of what that is. Um, but then it starts to grow and change. And then so from 97, you know, the, the, the special editions are back. Star Wars is coming back into the culture. And then well, in I, 90- think, I think oh, that's okay. how I first saw the movie. So I was born in 87. So at some point between 95 and 98, I watched the original trilogy. I rented them at Blockbuster. I right. went on. I mean, that yeah, was so did I. I mean, I didn't I want I want to make clear. I didn't see Star Wars for the first time when I was 12. <laughs> I saw it like the first time when I was like five or six, because, again, they're movies for children. Well, and so this is to say, like I did like 95, 98 was when I was doing like a ton of movie watching, becoming kind of like an obsessive, um, largely through Blockbuster. Rest in peace. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I rented and watched the original original trilogy and liked it. But it wasn't this like revelatory thing for me. Like it was a trilogy that I watched in addition to the Indiana Jones trilogy and the Back to the Future trilogy and all the Jaws movies. Like I would just go to Blockbuster on a Friday night. My mom would take me and I was like eight or 10 or whatever. And I would just rent three movies and I would watch them over the weekend. And I would, you know, I was like, all right, I've seen that franchise now. But Star Wars was never super revelatory for me. Like I enjoyed it and I had like, you know, I had the Han Solo blaster. Uh, that was pretty fun. And I thought Han Solo was cool, but I was much more into Indiana Jones and back to the future than I was star Wars. So I think that's why when the special editions were released in theaters, I didn't go see them. Um, and I don't think any of my fans or my friends were super into star Wars either. I was very excited about episode one. 
Um, and I think that speaks more to my uh, uh, affliction for, I guess, sequels than anything else of just like, ooh, a new Star Wars. Like, this is a new thing, a new, bright, shiny new thing. Um, and I very vividly remember seeing that teaser poster in a movie theater and getting super excited for it. Um, but yeah, Phantom Menace was the first Star Wars movie I saw in theaters. And like Phantom Menace is a big deal because by the time Phantom Menace has come out, it has been 22 years uh, since uh, Return – or I'm sorry, since A New Hope. So mm-hmm. Star Wars has changed. It has grown. Like, And that's the thing. Like Star Wars was never like – was not always the most popular thing, but it stayed relevant in the culture as like a shorthand. Again, it was a hit in its time. So it's not like Star Wars sort of became like a forgotten thing. Um, but – you know, once there was the prospect of a new movie, sort of the older generation of fans, you know, merged with this younger generation of fans as we all became really excited for a new Star Wars film that turned out to be very poor. <laughs> um, it was kind of, it, I, I think Phantom Menace is a really fascinating case study in watching like how hype gets the better of people. Because like, I, I mean, I was, I was 14 when I went to see Phantom Menace. And at the time I was like, I tried to convince myself like, oh, this is, you know, it starts a little rough, but then it gets good. And I don't really feel embarrassed by that because there were people who were like 20 years older than me being like, oh, it's, it's it's actually a good film. But the thing is, is like, you can't convince yourself of that forever. Like time eventually bears out. And that's not to say like everyone thought Phantom Menace was good. There were people who got its number right away and was like, this is bad. This is a bad freaking movie. Uh, it just took some of us a little longer to to take off our hype goggles and to to see what the film was, see it for what it was. And the I think the big problem with Phantom Menace is that it's just kind of an unnecessary story. Yeah, um, it's the kind of thing that feels like this should take twenty minutes at at most. Like if you if you're this bent on being like, where does Anakin Skywalker come from? It's important to tell us that he was a slave child, you know, and that he has you know harbors that, and he you know like all of Phantom Menace should just take twenty minutes. And it's so weird. Like it, it also feels like a film that wants to have it both ways where it's like, this is a film for children and I want to keep selling Star Wars toys. Okay, George, what's the film about? Taxation. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, that's the, that's the kind of push and pull because in so many ways, it's very much like a home alone kind of deal where it's like, Oh, look at this kid. He's like, you get to live vicariously through him as he's, you know, uh, falling in love with a princess and, uh, or whatever. What, what is Padme? Is she a queen? She's queen. That's She's a it. queen. Yeah. Um, uh, and like, you know, he's piloting a starship and getting caught up on all these droid battles. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. But like the first hour and a half of the movie is just him being just a passive, I guess the pod race sequence is the big thing. And as a kid, uh, you know, I was probably 12, I think it was 12 at the time that it came out. Uh, it was super cool. And like, I really liked the pod race thing. And that's really all I remembered about the movie. And I think I bought the pod racing video game on PlayStation or something like that. Uh, I think there was, yeah, it was a pod racing game on Nintendo 64. Nintendo 64. That was it. Um, But that was kind of the extent of my uh, involvement with Star Wars at the time. Like I didn't really understand that it was a bad movie. I don't necessarily remember being super upset about it because I enjoyed the parts that I enjoyed. Um, But it wasn't one that I came back to a lot. And I think looking at it now as an adult, like it's, it's a bad movie. It's not, the pacing is horrible. The acting is atrocious. Um, The story makes no sense. And as you said, it like, why in the world does it begin with two Jedi 
negotiating taxes. Like, and I think you and I, when we did our prequels podcast, came to the conclusion that the Jedi kind of suck. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, that, I mean, it's kind of amazing how how much Phantom Menace is a letdown in so many different ways. <laughs> because again, for 22 years, people are like, oh man, Jedi are awesome. Because like, Obi-Wan was a Jedi and he's awesome. And like Darth Vader, like before he turned bad, he was a Jedi and he's awesome. And Luke Skywalker, like he became a Jedi and he's awesome. So like Jedi are awesome, right? And then Luke is like, psych, Jedi suck. <laughs> Jedi are the fucking worst. <laughs> Jedi don't really do anything. They are like, it's this weird, like he basically had to finally write, like, what do the Jedi, like, what does a Jedi do? And it's sort of like monastic bureaucrats. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like what they are. Like, oh, that's not good at all. Those are, those two things don't go together. Um, and I, I can feel listeners yelling at us through uh, their car radio. Uh, but the, uh, like, if you're going to say like play KOTOR or play these video games or read these books like i i don't make me do extra work to understand your movie and i'm just judging them based on like yeah, what movies is are the movies i'm sorry yeah. folks like honest and honestly if if that is your trajectory then really what you're saying is fandom is based on how much shit you can buy because that's like well if you bought the books and if you bought the video games and if you played all like if you've made if you consumed enough things then it will all make sense and to me you're like if that's your belief you're kind of the sucker in that system like that's sort of like, hey, just buy a little bit more and maybe it'll make sense. Like the movie should work on its own and Phantom Menace does not work. It doesn't work as a story. It doesn't yeah. work as part of the Star Wars saga. Like it's just this thing that's there that almost kind of feels like the thing Lucas wanted to do. It feels like Luke, George Lucas had two goals with the Phantom Menace. One was to keep selling Star Wars toys and to create a bunch of new Star Wars toys. And second, to try out a bunch of VFX. And so he's like, I'm going to have a big VFX battle where like a bunch of, you know, droids that don't exist are going to fight a bunch of Gungans that don't exist. And there will be no actual emotional stakes to this battle, but it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think kind of the funniest thing in that is that that year at the Oscars, uh, Phantom Menace went head to head with The Matrix and got fucking creamed. Yeah. <laughs> like The Matrix was the film we were all talking about in terms of visual effects. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and that was maybe that's one of the reasons I don't really remember the Phantom Menace fondly, because that year I was super obsessed with the Matrix. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. It's a failure. And I understand that there are certain fans that want to engage with Star Wars in a way that does bring in the EU and the video games and stuff. And that's fine. Um, but that's just not the way I mean, we're talking about them as movies and I'm coming at them really only from the movies. I played like two Star Wars video games. Um, and they're just not interesting. They're yeah, not and I love like Knights of the Old Republic as much as the next guy, but it, it's it's ridiculous to say if you, in order to enjoy this film, you have to do extra work. Like you have to like if yeah. you see you have to go outside of movies to appreciate this movie, then it doesn't really work as a film. Films have to stand on their own. Just as if like I said, oh, this video game is gets really good once I you read this book. I'm like, oh, but I don't really, I just kind of want to play the game. No, 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 no. You have to read the 300 page book and then you can play the game. Like you you wouldn't sit, stand for that. You'd be like, I don't fuck it. I don't care. So like the, the thing has to stand on its own. Yeah. Um, and then we get to attack of the clones, which is somehow fucking worse. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, they're I think bad. I'm in the minority in that. I think the attack, I find attack of the clones more watchable just because of the, I do find the stuff with Obi Wan and the fucking tall alien 
Uh, yeah, that's actually I will I will grant you that everything that's happening with Obi Wan, which is a subplot, <laughs> is is actually kind of interesting. Like Obi Wan, like Jedi detective, yes. where he's like, I'm a, a I'm gonna follow clues and find the case, and like, oh, there's a there's a conspiracy. Like that's actually like not a bad story, but everything it's the subplot to Padme and Anakin are falling in love. Oh, by the way, George Lucas doesn't know how to work with actors. <laughs> yes. This so could bad. be a problem. It's so bad. It's yeah. yeah. Beyond that, it's not very watchable and boring. And what I do find interesting about the prequel trilogy is that it's not like George sat down and wrote the whole trilogy and then started shooting. He wrote *Phantom Menace* and had you know he knew broadly where he was going the next new movies. But the reason that *Phantom Menace* came out three years after or *Attack of the Clones* came out three years after *Phantom Menace* is that George kind of reworked the story and was writing towards the response he got from Phantom Menace. And I think that's why Attack of the Clones is a bit more adult. That doesn't make it better. It, in some ways, it makes it more boring. But I think he was like, well, I'll be a little bit more grown up after the Jar Jar backlash and everything. Well, not just the Jar Jar backlash. And by the way, Jar Jar fucking disappears from these movies. Like yeah. after set up as a major character in Phantom Menace. Um, the other part of it is that I still feel like they're kind of childish in their own way, like especially the climax of Attack of the Clones, where it's just like a bunch of Jedi with lightsabers running around chopping up droids. And then and I won't like I went to go see Attack of the Clones at a midnight screening with a friend. And I will never forget, like when Yoda busts out his lightsaber, <laughs> some dude in the audience just got up and started cheering. Like he was like, <laughs> he was losing his fucking mind. Like he had waited like years and years to see Yoda in a lightsaber battle. And I guess like, good for you. It looks terrible. <laughs> like, yeah. like I get the idea ant, of being ant, excited ant. by the idea of it, but when you watch it, you're like that Muppet is on crack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's silly. But I think that's the point where it's like, oh, these movies are not for me anymore. Yeah. And then and and so by the time Revenge of the Sith rolls around, I was in college and I went to a midnight screening, not because I was super excited. It just felt like an obligation. Like, oh, all right, well, I got to go. I got to finish this fucking thing. So like, I wasn't excited for it. I'm just like, it really did feel like I was obligated to see Revenge of the Sith. I wasn't I excited. I remember seeing it in theaters. I mean, I distinctly remember the all of the anticipation and seeing Phantom Menace. I do not remember how or when I saw Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Um and I was in my junior year of high school and Revenge of the Sith came out and like nobody was very interested in it. So, yeah, I mean, I just went to see it by myself. Like I couldn't find any friends. He's like, hey, you want to come with me to a midnight screening of Revenge of the Sith? No one no one wanted to go. And so I just went by myself at a midnight screening and I just kind of sat there. I'm like, wow, at least this thing moves so fast. Yeah, that. Uh, but I going back when we watched it for the, for that podcast, I was like, this is really boring and bad too. And like some people swear by Revenge of the Sith, they're like, that's the one that it's all been leading to. It's the it's the important one, and like it's it's got the darkness and I'm like, yeah, but it's still pretty bad because I will okay. So the the, the one scene I like in Revenge of the Sith is the Darth Plagueis thing because it's just yes. two characters. Talking. I think that's actually a really good scene and there's not enough of that of just like characters interacting and manipulation and like there's not an like even though there's a lot of characters talking in these in the prequels like very little of it has weight uh, but the Darth Plagueis conversation does the problem my biggest problem with Revenge of the Sith is that Anakin his guiding force is like I have to save Padme everything I'm doing all the terrible things I'm doing 
is to save Padme. And then he thinks she's cheating on him for half a second and decides to murder her. Yes. Like, it's like the shitty, it's like, oh, my character doesn't need to track anymore. Like, he's just like, oh, I, I was really about rage. And I don't know, maybe some, it, it feels insulting to be like, Anakin he has nothing but love, but then it, like a switch flips and he's all of a sudden like, oh, I'm going to kill you, Padme. Like it's, and she, ah, it's so bad. It's so. Well, it's bad. also insulting. It doesn't track that when Padme finds out that Anakin's bad, she dies of a broken heart. Like that's bullshit. That's the, bullshit the Padme that you've set up through this entire prequel trilogy is that she's super smart, super strong, super independent. I mean, she spent the entire Phantom Menace living dual lives. That's takes balls. Um, and then she dies of a broken heart and it just feels like, and this is my least favorite thing about, um, uh, franchises like franchises like this is that it feels like George trying to back his truck into a predetermined story. And it's the problem I have with the Harry Potter, uh, epilogue is that you're just trying to retrofit this amorphous evolving thing into something that you set up years and years ago and it doesn't really work anymore case in point like you know they have two kids and decide to split them up and hide them but they're giving luke the skywalker name and putting him with his aunt and uncle how is no one gonna find him that doesn't make any sense um and then it's like well you know we said that she died so she has to die uh how does she die i don't know broken heart it's just stupid, and it betrays the characters that you set up in this thing. Like, just follow through with, like, you know what? Shit changes, and characters change, and find something, find a more interesting way to end the story. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will say, I do like the Plagueis scene, and I do really like the scene where, um, I think there are, like, pretty much everything between Anakin and Palpatine I like in this movie. I think yeah, I think that's, that's sort of what works. Everything yeah. else, though, is garbage. Like, even, like, that big lightsaber battle is comically overlong and yeah. overdone. It's stupid, and everything blurs together, and nothing is interesting. Yeah. Spoiler alert, the best lightsaber and space battles are in The Last Jedi. <laughs> and, oh, oh, all our listeners left. No, oh, no. Back. All right. Well, with that, why don't we move on to... So then... Uh, so there's Revenge of the Sith, and then it's sort of like, like okay, Star Wars is done again because Lucas does not seem to be in any rush. Uh, we do get the Clone Wars animated series, which I haven't watched, but a lot of people seem to really dig. Um, good for them. I'll watch it eventually. Um, there's a Clone Wars movie that I've heard is fucking terrible, but I, I honestly don't know. Um, there, uh, and then uh, Lucasfilm is sells to Disney. That's it's bought by Disney um, and Disney immediately gets to work on, re, you know, those sequels. And that's we we move to there's this big like who's going to direct Star Wars episode not episode seven and what's it going to be and, you know, what what's going to happen. And it I mean, it really is one of the craziest lead ups that we've ever covered to yeah. be in that to be like, who's going to direct? Who's going to star like every actor fucking tested for for the force. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan was in the running, Chloe Moretz was in the running, tons of people, you know, they went to J.J. first, and J.J. said no. Uh, uh, Kathleen Kennedy even asked David Fincher if he wanted to direct it, and David Fincher was like, no thanks. Um, everybody was, you know, considered and asked and whatever, and and 
Michael Arndt worked on the screen. So it, and this is the the part that's a little foggy and I'm very curious to know like the real actual story. Um, so when George Lucas sold Luke, uh, Lucasfilm to Disney, he handed them his treatment for the sequel trilogy. He handed them outlines for what these next three movies would be. And it came out later that Michael Arndt was already working on a screenplay at that time. Michael Arndt wrote Toy Story three. He's one of the highest paid screenwriters in Hollywood. Um, because he does a ton of script doctor work that you don't know about, uh, uncredited. And uh, he wrote Little Miss Sunshine and won an Oscar for that movie. But uh, he's apparently very good with structure. And so he had been working on the script for a while. And so there was an, a, an existing story. And then once J.J. was hired to direct, Arndt worked with J.J. on that script for a year and then left. Um we don't know exactly why. The report suggested that it was a difference in opinion over the direction of the, the story for Episode 7. Um, whereas one of them wanted the, the film to focus more on the original trilogy characters, which I think was J.J., and uh, the other wanted to focus more on the new characters, which I think was Michael Arndt, and probably uh, George Lucas's original intention. Um, but I could be I could add that flipped. I'm not sure. Uh, but I th- find that very interesting uh, where, you know, in the development history of The Force Awakens, um, you know, fairly close to when filming was supposed to begin, they lost their screenwriter. And so J.J. and Lawrence Kasdan set about essentially rewriting that screenplay. And the final credits uh, have J.J., Lawrence Kasdan and Michael Arndt all credited with the screenplay. Yeah, it's. So another thing that's really frustrating is that when it gets absorbed into the Disney machine, Disney wants you to believe that everything is working as it should, that everything at Disney, nothing goes wrong at Disney. And I think the problem with that is it obscures a lot of what happened in the force awakens to a, to a degree that I think is a disservice to fans because at the end of the day, like the force awakens was a huge hit. It made like what? $2 billion or something like that. Like, yeah, it it was a huge fucking hit, but you know, the, the, the Blu-ray release has like a making of documentary that doesn't even mention that Harrison Ford broke his leg, you know, making the film. And there was shut down production for weeks, which is when JJ and Lawrence Kasdan did the bulk of their rewriting because the movie was not working as shot. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, there was supposed to be like, you know, uh, was J.W. Rinsler is the, uh, yeah. um, he's, he, he was going to do a book for, for, uh, for Force Awakens. They, Lucasfilm shut that down. Um, I'm like there was a book about I'm making a book. And the thing about his books is they're very warts and all like they're like, they, they're very honest about how these films are made. And you, he's, he did them for the original trilogy. I don't know if he did them for the prequels, um, but he did them for the original trilogy and he was going to do it for, for force awakens and they shut it down. So force awakens is, you know, no pun intended, but it's in a sort of mystery box of <laughs> yeah. what exactly fucking happened on this movie. Um, which is frustrating when the film is a hit. Like I get it. Like when the film is a failure, you don't want to cast aspersions or ruins anyone's reputation, but the film is a hit. Just tell us how it was made. Like no one's yeah. going to be like, like it worked out for you guys. Cause force awakens. I don't think it's a very bold film, but I think, and we've talked about this force awakens is the movie that it needs to be. It needs to, to, to appease a studio that just made a $4 billion investment in the star Wars property. and cannot stand to have another phantom menace on its hands they did the safest thing possible, which is just basically remake a new hope. Yeah. And it's fine. Like the movie is super breezy. I think it's very similar to Abrams, uh, Star Trek movies. Um, 
and uh, after Rise of Skywalker, I am very curious to revisit Into Darkness um, to see <laughs> kind of how that lines go, up. Go with God, sir. <laughs> I have revisited Into Darkness, and it's still the fucking worst. <laughs> the score is very good. I like Michael Giacchino's score for that movie. Um, I can't. I can't comment on that. That <laughs> film. I'm like a. I love Star Trek, and like. The, the thing about the first Star Trek, like Star Trek 09, is it's just kind of held together with spit and duct tape, but it moves so fast that you just kind of go with it. Even if you're like, wait, did that cadet who was on probation just get promoted to first mate? <laughs> because, like, it doesn't, it doesn't hold because it's to its own internal logic at all. And it certainly doesn't appreciate what Star Trek is, but whatever, you're having a fun time and you just kind of go with it. Uh, Into Darkness is dog shit. Um, <laughs> it's really fucking bad and like i could and again oh nine star trek oh nine and i'm getting off on a tangent but i know like star trek oh nine i can kind of forgive because it's kind of scripts stacked on top of each other but they had a fresh start for into darkness and they still really bad basically roberto orzi got to make his 9-11 truther movie so good for him i guess (laughs) yeah um but back to star wars (laughs) Um, i do think i do think force awakens works when it works, it works really well. And I still find that movie endearing and fun to watch. And I think Harrison Ford genuinely gives a really good performance in it. And I think the most important thing that J.J. Abrams had to do was create really new, interesting, compelling characters. And he does that in Ray, yeah, he's Finn, and Kylo Ren. He's good with pacing. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think it worked. Like, you care about, like, that's, again, that's a tough thing to do. Like, I need people to care about Ray. I need people to care about Finn. And I need people to care about Kylo Ren. And he does it. Like you, you are now invested with these characters. And, and so for a guy who back in, back in when uh, force awakens came out, who only planned to do the one movie uh, yeah. and he was not thrilled about it. Like he was like, he was not thrilled that he'd have to spend so much time away from his family, making the film in London. Like he was which not, is, which is why you convinced him to do post-production in LA. Right. Like he was not thrilled about the, that proposition. And so he was sort of like, all right, I've given you some good characters. I've, teased out some some mysteries you can build upon if you'd like go with god and then that brings us to ryan johnson the last jedi which decided to make everyone mad (laughs) (laughs) well i think and very much like the original trilogy it's very interesting cinematically watching force awakens and last jedi back to back they are two very different looking films uh you know abrams's visual style is a lot of long lenses uh, a lot of lens flares uh working with cinematographer dan mendel who i think is very good and i think force awakens looks cool and is interesting um although i do think that there are some major story lags in that movie the whole like harrison ford with the uh the wrath tars wrath tars there's no reason for that um and then last jedi is just so meticulous and calm in its cinematography uh, and, and the geography of that movie, you're never whizzing around or buzzing around. You don't know where or when you are. And that's why I say I think The Last Jedi has the best space battles of any Star Wars movie because you always know where everyone is, what is the goal, what needs to happen here in order for the heroes to win, and what are they doing. That entire opening bomber sequence is just jaw-dropping in its execution. And just the cinematography and what he's doing with the shot composition to make you feel. like We don't know who uh, Rose's sister is when the movie opens, and... um you know, she's not some famous character who's going to go on to, you know, live on in the history and do other things. But um, you feel for her like through the through the filmmaking, through the shot composition, you emotionally connect with this character. 
And uh, it's just like, that's the kind of filmmaking that Ryan Johnson is doing here. And I think that's, that's part of what makes the last Jedi so special is that no shot is wasted. Nothing is done by accident. Everything is very carefully thought out and plotted out. You can say whatever you want out with the last Jedi, but you cannot say it's messy and random in its execution. Or can you? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. People, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy, like how much um, hatred is lobbed to it toward it. Uh, Matt Singer for Screen Crush wrote a really good article the other day about like why did it engender such backlash, and his thesis is that um, Last Jedi is constantly questioning Star Wars. It's a film that is very much trying to get people to move out of the past. Everyone in the film is fighting against the past, whether they're the bad guys or the good guys, they want to be done with the past and, and find a way forward. And like, that's where the narrative, that's the dramatic tension in the film, um, the thematic tension. And uh, if you're, if you're, understanding of star Wars is based on lore and what was, what was the past and everything like that. If you're just rooted in nostalgia, you're probably going to hate, um, last Jedi. There are as a small subset of folk, um, that also feel that last Jedi is, uh, secretly racist and sexist and not actually woke enough. Um, yeah, I read a, I read a, a, a tweet thread that basically said, the ending of the film is racist because the little boy who uses his force powers to pick up the broom is white, therefore signaling that Star Wars is only for white people. Oh my god! Which that is insane. It reminded me insane reach. It reminded me of um, you've seen Chasing Amy, right? Yeah. You know when Hooper X is talking about how. Star Wars is is racist and because what they're telling is with Darth Vader is deep down all black people want to secretly be white. That's the kind of read it sounds like. Like it's like yes, you can make that argument, but I think the the your the lens you're forcing on the film is saying more about you as a as a as a viewer than what the film is going for because and I'm not saying like you're not allowed to have that perspective and I certainly think film should be questioned along socioeconomic political lines like I think those are it's fine to do that but I don't think you have the ammunition for that argument that's insane and I think there's so many more interesting things to talk about with the last Jedi. Like you said, it's constantly challenging, but it's challenging every notion of what it means to be a hero. So, you know, Poe traditionally would be this flyboy who's always right. Cause he's always going with his gut and everything works out. But the movie is about how like that's sometimes wrongheaded. And just because you ultimately take down the dreadnought doesn't negate the fact that you lost a lot of lives. Like a lot of people died for it. And, and for what? And Poe throughout the film is butting heads with uh, Leia and Haldo thinking that he's always right. And the film kind of wants to make you think that, Oh, maybe he is always right. Maybe it's going to work out until it ultimately proves that Haldo is more heroic than anyone on that ship because she's willing to lay down her life and sacrifice herself for the good of the people and has a plan. Like she's enacting a very smart and good plan. And if Poe would just sit down, relax and, you know, learn his place, uh, which I think is tough for some people. I think that's why, because the film is constantly pushing these uh, gender roles and uh, traditional notions of 
heroism. I mean, Finn is another example. Finn is set up to be this kind of heroic guy. But what does he do in Force Awakens? He tries to run away. What does he do in Last Jedi? He tries to run away again. But he's justifying this time by saying, you know, as long as I can run away and make sure Ray doesn't get hurt, everything will be fine. But, like, what's your end game there? Like, you're going to have Ray meet up with you, but then what are you guys going to do? Because the Resistance will be dead. They'll all be gone. And it takes Rose to teach him that not only is that a stupid idea, but also the world is bigger than you, dude. And you go to Canto Bight, and I know this sequence is divisive, and I do think it goes on too long. We don't need that action sequence. But it sh- it opens Finn's eyes to a larger world, and then you have the Benicio del Toro, del Toro character, which you wrote about so well and eloquently, of Thank this you. kind of like... Uh, you know, his his stance on everything is like, hey, you know, everything's fucked. Both sides are terrible. So I'm just going to take whoever gives me the most money. Again, challenging notions of heroism. And Finn understands through this character, like, that is also shitty. And that's the wrong thing to do. The arc of Finn is by the end of the film, he's willing to lay down his life so that a few resistance members can live. That's a 180 from where he is at the beginning of the movie. And I understand from John Boyega's standpoint, shooting these little scenes probably wasn't a ton of fun. But ultimately, at the end of the film, it's a much more satisfying arc for that character and and challenges you to rethink what you think about heroism. And then, you know, obviously the Luke Skywalker stuff is challenging heroism. No, I, I agree. Like, that's the, like I think what I think what makes Last Jedi so strong is that it says what is going to challenge each of these characters and really force them to sort of consider where we we are with them. And I think. By going, it's not a film that's like going ex- against expectations just to fuck with the audience. Like it's like no, the only way to grow to make these characters grow and change and to make them believable is to challenge them. Which, by the way, is what Empire Strikes Back does. Is yeah. it takes them and it says no, we're going to put them in a difficult position, and through those challenges, you sort of get where you're going from. So like you have a film where you know I've heard like an argument against Ray is like you know it's just a movie where guys tell her what to do, but by the end of the film she's rejected both Luke Skywalker and Kylo Ren to yeah. sort of be her own person and realize that you know what's most important to her are her friends. Like that's what has been tested in that moment is she could have had you know she could have ruled with Kylo Ren if she did whatever he said, but she doesn't. She rejects him. And she also rejects Luke and, you know, she doesn't know she decides to go be her own person because what matters to her the most are her friends. Like, and that says a lot about that character and who she is and what she wants, but still forces her to grow as a Jedi, like, and to sort of go, I think what a lot of people wanted, they wanted basically, you know, you know, Mark Hamill to put, you know, to go on Daisy Ridley's back and have her carry him around while she lifted rocks. Like, and instead the film says, no, actually let's question, let's question these things. Let's not just take them. And just, and I think some people like the, the, and and again, maybe I'm wrong, but the, the, the sheer gall of questioning Star Wars to, to even question, you know, the sacred texts uh, is, is an affront. And I think that that's, I think, you know, I think that's, if you, if, if that is your position, I, I, I strongly encourage you to watch more movies and read more books and, and, and see more stories, because I think you will gain a greater appreciation of narrative. And I know that sounds patronizing as hell, but honestly, where you're at right now of this thing has to stay the way that it is because it's my childhood and I've bought all the books and I bought all the lore and it has to be this or it's bad. That's a really rigid orthodox mindset to be in. And it keeps you stunted and it makes you a limited person in your, in how you process art. 
I also just don't really understand it because, I mean, it, it challenges Luke's heroism, obviously. But by the end of the movie, he's laying down his life to save the few members of the Resistance that are left and doing it in badass fashion by having this, you know, lightsaber showdown with Kylo Ren. Like, right. that's cool. Like, he shows up. Like, okay, yeah, maybe you can be mad that Luke decided to turn his back on everyone, and maybe that doesn't make perfect sense for you. But by the end of the movie, he does the right thing. He shows up. He shows up for the people that yeah, he, uh, he, he cares about. He's a guy who's wrestling with guilt. And again, as, as um, Lindsay Romain of Nerdist pointed out, you know, all of these storylines are things that Abrams left Ryan Johnson with. Mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson did not... I mean, yes, Ryan Johnson does cut off some threads. Like, he's like, I don't care who Snoke is. I don't care who Captain Phasma is. And he cuts yeah. those out. But he picks up. He's like, okay, if Luke Skywalker is in the middle of fucking nowhere, why is he there? And yeah. I have to answer that question. If Finn is in a coma at the end of Force Awakens, I have to. But I know that my story has to pick up, no matter what, it has to pick up with Ray handing that lightsaber to Luke. Like, I can't do a time jump here. The audience won't allow it. They need to see what happens next. Then all my characters have to pick up from where they left off, which means Finn is in a co- is has to wake up out of a coma. And yeah, he's leaking fluid, but, you know, that does because he's in a rush to find out what happened to his friend. Also, it's a visual callback to when Luke was in the uh, revivification chamber or whatever in Empire Strikes Back. Like, it's a visual yeah. callback, you know? And so, like, these characters are are where they are because of where Force Awakens left them. And so I guess the, the, the alternative is, is, like, what choices would you make to create a stronger story? And I, I, I can't suss it out. I think Last Jedi is, the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it. It's interesting that it's become such a flashpoint and such a litmus test. Um but I think that's a good thing. You know, some people are like, oh, I don't want last Jedi conversation. I'm like, then don't follow it. It's a big internet out there. Like you're not confined to this shit, you know, go somewhere else. I think it's good to actually have art that we can talk about. If you want art that like, Oh, I saw it and I've disposed of it already. I think that's weak. And I think that's sad. And I don't, I would not want you to pursue that goal. So even if you hate last Jedi, I think there's value there in discussing it. I, for one, am bracing myself for a lot of Rise of Skywalker talk, which we will get to next week. <laughs> well, and like, you know how rare it is to still be talking about a blockbuster movie two years after it came out? Yeah. Like, I think that speaks to uh, just how rich the film is. And another reason it's great that came to me when I was watching it again recently is it's so the plot is very simple. And it allows you to really dig deep into the characters and to the themes because it's essentially just uh, it's a chase movie like it. It's going from point A to point B. It's not flashing forward and back in time. It's not having characters jump around to all these different places. The resistance is on the run from the first order and they must survive. And so the truck, the clock is ticking for all of the resistance members. The clock is ticking for Ray. She knows she has to get. Uh, Luke to come back because she's not hearing from the resistance and she's worried something's up and something's in trouble. Um, so that ticking clock, I think, works in the film's favor. And it's not trying to, you know, weave in all of these different mythological things and side quests and all this other stuff. Even the Kento Bite thing, that's a side quest that is, it's ultimately in favor of the resistance getting away from the First Order. Yeah. No, I mean, the film works. And I, I have, you know, it's funny, again, to go back to Phantom Menace, you you can, I, you know, I think the opinions are kind of stuck where they are. Like, I don't I don't foresee myself 
being like, ah, oh, Last Jedi is bad now. Like, if I was trying to, like, clown myself into being like, oh, yeah, Last Jedi is actually good because I'm such a Ryan Johnson fan, you can't keep up that illusion for two years. The film no. still works. It's still really good. Now, if you hate it, that, you know, that's your business. That's fine. I don't really... I'm fine with like, it's okay to dislike movies. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that again (laughs) (laughs) as rise of Skywalker's on the horizon. It's okay (laughs) to dislike movies. Um, but I think it's good also to have sort of those conversations. Yeah. Although I will still say, I still don't understand the first order resistance stuff. Oh, that stuff. Yeah. That, that feels like it's, it, it makes no sense because, um, basically what clearly what JJ Abrams wanted was, is like, I need to do another empire rebel story, but I exist in a post empire setting. So basically, and I'm going to try to explain it in the opening crawl Yeah, that basically it's a, from the ashes of the empire comes the first order. Okay. But the empire was a governing body. Does the first order have like, do they have governors? Do they have like, are they involved in politics or are they just like a fascist, paramilitary group is that what they are and it's like but then there's the resistance i'm like okay so is the resistance do they work for the republic do they work are they the (laughs) republic's military like again it's very fuzzy um because jj abrams isn't really about the details um he wants the thing that is reminiscent of the thing that you'd like well and again in in last jedi i think ryan simplifies it by you have multiple times characters are saying like the resistance only has 300 members left or something like that on these however many ships and in force awakens which kind of blew by my head the first time like oh the first order wiped out the planets of the republic therefore now the first order is in charge kind of but doesn't really explicitly state that yeah they don't really exchange again the the power dynamic here is is fuzzy at best well, and so like the the last Jedi's whole—I uh, mean, that's why it keeps repeating the motif of light the spark uh, across the galaxy. Because now the Republic is wiped out, it's up to the Resistance to essentially spark rebellion across the galaxy against the First Order. And I guess right. that's what we'll see in Rise of Skywalker. Who knows? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Does it get any clearer? No. Okay. Cool. It's it gets worse. <laughs> In this discussion we're having about how much powers the First Order have, it becomes more convoluted, and we will get to that next week. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. 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 Little something for y'all. Check it in. All right. Um, So now, so but we won't get into Rise of Skywalker now. Let's talk about the spinoffs. We have Rogue One and we have Solo. And, you know, I think a lot can be said about Kathleen Kennedy's sort of tenure as the president of Lucasfilm. Um, I think... To be fair to Kathleen Kennedy, I think she gets less praise than she deserves and more blame than she deserves. I think for Kathleen Kennedy, she is someone who is answering to the Disney board. She's answering to Bob Iger. She's answering to a lot like the, the concern, like Kathleen Kennedy does not exist in a volume in a vacuum where she's just like, I'll just tell the best story possible. <laughs> like Kathleen Kennedy <laughs> has a lot of people to answer to, even though she's in charge of Lucasfilm. Yeah. Um, that being said, I think she made two – I think her her poorest decisions were how – were the handling of Rogue One and Solo. And I think that, again, she – again, she's answering to studio executives. They're seeing dailies. Maybe they're not happy. I think it would have been better in the long run if she had just stuck by her directors and said, look, the film is the film and we're going to ride this out and – uh you know, I think this, I believe in my directors 
And even if we don't personally get along, I think I believe in, you know, they sold me on a vision for this movie and I want it. I think we're, and we're going to make that vision, you know, come true. And instead, basically with Rogue One, uh, Gareth Edwards is fired. Uh, but they're like, we won't say we fired you. We'll just say that, you know, we hired Tony Gilroy to help out on reshoots. Gareth Edwards was fired off that film, but because he went quietly, he gets his name. He still gets his director credit. And, um, you know, it was seen as like the, you know, he was, he was playing ball essentially, but that movie largely belongs to Tony Gilroy. And it's a really frustrating film. I, so I rewatched Rogue One and I, I love the premise of Rogue One. I love it. I think it's such a great idea for a Star Wars story to be like, how do you, like, how do rebels get the plans? And let's like, let's not worry about Jedi. Let's not worry about the force. Let's like, what is a nuts and bolts boots on the ground Star Wars story that also, but also that people will immediately understand of like, oh, the Death Star plans. I've seen A New Hope. They had the Death Star plans. So it's it's really easy to instantly understand the stakes of the story. The problem is, is that it's it's been reshot to hell. So characters don't track and you never get invested in these people. And so I think, well, um, Rogue One has some really good sequences and some good ideas. Like, I think it's the closest of any Star Wars film to feel like a war film, like especially yeah. when you're on the beach. Um, and like the cost of this war and like, you know, the lives being lost – um, it doesn't come together like it should. It, it I really, I, it'll never happen, but I kind of wish they would remake Rogue One and like give it a fresh start because again, the premise is really good. The, the, the ideas of it are really good. It's like, it just, the execution went off the rails. Yeah. I think Gareth, Gareth Edwards is great with, uh, iconographic shots. And I think some of the shots in that movie are really gorgeous and pretty, the story is just not wonderful. Um, and I know people who uh, like swear by Rogue One. They love Rogue One. And Rogue One made a ton of money, but I think that's that has more to do with the fact that it was the first ever Star Wars spinoff than the fact that it's a very good movie. Um, I honestly just, it's so convoluted, I can't remember a bunch of it. And I've seen it like twice, maybe three yeah, times. Like, yeah, the plotting is all over the place. Like basically... Jin Urso is the daughter of Galen Urso, and like to get to Galen Urso, who's working on the Death Star, they have to get Jin to go meet up with Saw Gerrera, who then will then provide a lead to a to a defecting pilot who who worked with Galen, and then they all have to kind of go and find Galen. And then meanwhile, um, uh, director Krennic is trying to get the Death Star up and running. And like, it, you know, it's getting to where it needs to be, but in a really sloppy manner to where, you know, I, having rewatched these Star Wars films, I, I've really, I've come to the conclusion that these movies live or die by their characters and yeah. how the characters are treated. And I think a film like Force Awakens kind of gets away with just being like, oh, it's a remake of A New Hope because you, you like Rey, you like Finn, you like Kylo Ren, like you're invested yeah. in these new characters. I could not tell you shit about Bay's Malbus. Um, cheers, baseball. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Um, well, and I think to to give you an idea of just how significantly this movie was reworked, and I think this is the reason it doesn't make any sense. Tony Gilroy, the screenplay is credited to Tony Gilroy and Chris Weitz. Tony Gilroy was not brought on to work on the screenplay of this movie until the movie had been shot. Like he earned a co writer credit, co writer credit, having joined the film in post production like to do the reshoots and that's how significant the reshoots were uh it, it, and like earning a co-writer credit is 
is not an easy thing to do. So that's how significant these reshoots were. And it was kind of reworking the existing footage with the new footage and all of that stuff. And, and I still don't think they all Tony Gilroy. Yeah. And I don't think they get there. Like going back to what I was saying about characters, um, you need the Jin Urso character to track. You need like where we, we meet her at the beginning and she's like the rebellion and then the war have ruined my life. They've, they've ruined my life. I don't want anything to do with that. Um, and then in the next act, she's like, you know, I care about, I, I want to reconnect with my father. I miss my father. And then I don't trust Cassian. Cassian was going to kill my father. They have a big fight on the ship as they fly back to base. And then the third act, she's all like, go rebellion. <laughs> she's yeah. like, She's like, like rebellions are built on hope. And I'm like, where did this fucking come from? What yeah. change of heart did you have? What made you realize this? And then all of a sudden, like her and Cassian are like buddy, buddy again. And they're like, we'll join you. And we're going to go on this mission together. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in terms of following these characters and believing their actions. The only character that in, in Rogue One that I really like is the comic relief character, K2SO, who I think uh, Alan Tudyk does really good voice work there. Um, yeah. It's a funny character. But Beyond that, it's just it's 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 such a frustrating film because again, the idea is great, uh, but the characters and the story aren't there. There's also a mind reading monster in this movie, in case you forgot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Rogue One is bad, and Solo yeah. is bad. Um, and then you get to Solo, which like here's the thing: like Rogue One, at least like I'm kind of invested in because like the given like the, the you're like oh this could be better this could be better but like even when you get to like the war sequence you're like oh this war sequence is really good like you know i mean there's some really good shots in in rogue one solo is so boring and yes. safe and again i get that like kathleen kennedy like had conflict with uh lord and miller but at what co- like was was it really better to be like whatever lord and miller are doing is so detrimental to Star Wars that the franchise will never recover and therefore we must fire them. Um, because they like, again, she like, they kind of got the same offer. They got the same sort of like, Hey, you can sort of stick around and get the credit, but we're going to reshoot all of this. And they're like, fuck no, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Like fight. They're like, fire us. You're going to have to fire us publicly. Yeah. And that's what happened. Like they got fired publicly and then went on to win a couple Oscars for into the spider verse. So yes, they're doing a lot better than Gareth Edwards, who has apparently disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. It's, which is sad. He's uh, it's sad. I'm not like happy that happened to Gareth Edwards. It's just like, you know, Lord and Miller, like they didn't take the deal and it worked out for them that they didn't take the deal because also solo is, you know, it's, it's boring. And like, I, Disney can be like, Oh, we just released too many star Wars films too quickly. Like, Oh, there should, we shouldn't have released solo six months after or five months after, uh, the last Jedi. And I don't think that's the problem. I think even if solo had been released in December, it may have done slightly better, but I don't think people were were all that interested in like Han Solo's origin story. No. And I mean, I've said many times before, give me the Snyder cut, give me the messy, unaltered artistic vision over the, you know, studio driven, uh, bland version any day. But yeah, I've tried to rewatch solo and I can't do it. And that's rare for me. Uh, I just find it so uninteresting. And it's like Alden Ehrenreich is a fantastic actor. I'm really bummed for him because it feels like it's kind of tanked some of his uh, chances after the fact. Amelia Clark has made, you know, two bad franchise movies. I wasn't even super charmed by Donald Glover's uh, Lando in the movie. 
It just like I don't know. It really has very few. I think the problem is is that like when you bring in Ron Howard, you're going to get something very safe and very workmanlike. Um, there's really no flair to it, and that's a problem if your character is Han Solo. If your character is Han, if your lead character is Han Solo, someone who's roguish and plays by his own rules and kind of like is unpredictable, the film should follow suit, and it doesn't. Solo is very plotting and very, you know, it's a heist film. We're going to yeah. go on a heist, going to heist some stuff. You know, it's, it's just, it, it, it's very bland. And like, I, I, I would, it's not like aggressively terrible. Like the prequels where I'm like, this is fucking stupid. It's just like, it doesn't want to be noticed. It's like solo. It's accomplishment is that it exists and that it's yeah. competent. And like, that's what I go for movies for competency. <laughs> So yeah. solo is bad. But again, I think, you know, Kathleen Kennedy should have said, you know, we're going to, you know, whatever Edwards does, whatever Lord and Miller do, we're going to, we're going to ride this out. And it may not, not everyone will like it, but it will get an emotional reaction from people that will keep it in the conversation and make star Wars, you know, relevant. And I think Disney was like, we don't want to be relevant. We don't want to be controversial. We want to be safe and profitable. Disney is all about minimizing risk and maximizing reward. And that to me bodes very poorly for the future of star Wars. Yeah. Um, and again, we'll get to rise of Skywalker next week, but I think that the future of star Wars is very bleak. Um, and I don't mean to be a pessimist about it, but I think if you look at star Wars and the future of star Wars is like the Mandalorian, um, you see a f- series that doesn't really want to take chances as much as it wants to just feed you back the thing that you like. And maybe it's slightly cuter this time. So like, you know, everyone's losing their fucking minds over baby Yoda. And what is baby Yoda? Like baby Yoda is not a character. Let's be clear. Baby Yoda has no character. He is a prop. Um, he's an adorable prop, but that's the point. I'm going to take something you already know. Yoda. I'm not going to give you a new alien. Cause I don't want to freak you out. But it's Yoda, but he's a baby, and babies are adorable, so it's babies plus Yoda equals money. And that's sort of the future of Star Wars, which is I'm going to give you something you recognize. So like, oh, it's a Mandalorian. It's not Boba Fett because Boba Fett's kind of done, but we're it's basically Boba Fett. And you like Boba Fett, and it's like a bounty hunter, and now like, but does the Mandalorian have like a rich story? Like I've said, I've sat through seven episodes of this now and I don't hate the Mandalorian. I thought the, the, the first few episodes were kind of weak, but once it settles into its rhythm of like, he goes on an adventure, he does the thing, he goes back, like as a very low stakes, uninteresting show, <laughs> the Mandalorian kind of works. Like the Mandalorian is like on the level of like a CBS procedural where it's like, this is the case of the week. This is the adventure of the week. And like, okay, fine. And I think for Disney, that's great. Because it's not controversial, it gives you some, gives the people what they want, and that's all that they need. And I think that's your future of Star Wars. What Disney does not want as the future of Star Wars is The Last Jedi. The Last yeah. Jedi is anathema to Disney. Because The Last Jedi is not popular. It's not that even The Last Jedi is unpopular. Because the film made like a billion dollars. Like it's, People went to see it, it got like an A cinema score or an A minus, like a good cinema score. So people who went to see it did not feel cheated by The Last Jedi. But there was a vocal subset of fans who hated it. And that we cannot abide that. We need things to be more like The Force Awakens, where it's something recognizable, but not controversial. And it doesn't need to be the best thing ever, but it has to be popular. It has to be like well received. And as long as something is well received, 
that is all it is. Because Disney is not in the business of making art. Disney is in the business of making profit. And what that means for Star Wars is you're going to get a lot of safe product. Um, that is the future of Star Wars. Uh, or that is at least what Disney is going to go for. They're going to go for some very safe stuff. Uh, which again, which is why your next Disney series is an Obi-Wan series. Which because, hey, you know Obi-Wan, right? Like, here's what he's been up to. Again, not really taking chances. And for some people, that's great. They don't want chances. Like, they want Star Wars. Star Wars is something that they buy. I paid my ticket. I bought the, all the books. I want my lore fed in back to me. I want, you know, I want it on the level of, I don't want to be challenged by Star Wars. Life is challenging enough as it is. Um, and I think that's what you're going to get. You're going to get something that's kind of unchallenging, but satisfying and forgettable. Yay! <laughs> I don't mean to bum everyone out. I'm <laughs> sure I have. Um, you know, but we'll see. I'm curious what the Kevin Feige Star Wars movie is because he seems he seems to be pretty good at threading the needle between you know what Disney wants and something that's at least mildly interesting. So this is true. This is true. We will we'll see. I could be wrong, but I feel knowing Disney and how Disney acts as a company, I would not be optimistic about what the future of Star Wars looks like. Like it'll be there, but as a thing you can buy, but it'll be, it will not be interesting art. You know, that's just my, that's my feeling. Hot take. Hot take. All right. Well, that's the show for today. Uh, like I said, next week we will be talking about Rise of Skywalker. Um, so please tune in for that. Uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.